1: Uh, Good morning, North Canton Chapel. I have something I want to share with you this morning. I believe that everybody is searching for something. Everyone. You just saw the trailer that introduced our new teaching series for these next few weeks called What is the Gospel? So I thought I would share a few searching statistics for you. So first off, Google, the search engine we all know and love, handles 3.8 million searches every minute. That's 228 million searches every hour and 5.8 billion searches every day. That's incredible to me. We watch one billion hours of YouTube per day, 70% of which is given to us by their recommended algorithm. It's pretty crazy. Now get this statistic. The average smartphone user will tap, swipe, or click their phone over 2,600 times a day. Everyone is searching for something, So it's true in a digital sense, it's also true in a spiritual sense. 2020 has become a world that is reeling in hopelessness, dizzy with disconnection, hungry and hurting. We're all searching for meaning and purpose and connection, probably more and more, but we're finding it less and less. So as I told you, this week starts a four-week teaching series called, What is the Gospel? And here's my hope. I want to invite you to awaken your joy at the simple beauty of the gospel. To know that the gospel is incredibly simple and incredibly powerful, that this one message can span cultures and generations, that this is the story from which all other stories draw their power. You know, at North Canton Chapel, we say this all the time. We say we exist to be the church who makes much of Jesus every day to everyone. And I really think that over the next four weeks, you're going to get a really crystal clear picture as to why we say that. This series is going to be a deep dive into the finished work of Jesus on the cross and the ongoing work of Jesus in our lives. And I couldn't be more excited. This is a changeless message for an ever-changing world. So here's how these next four weeks are going to break out. I just want to show you all the cards right up front because I'm really excited about it. Week one, that's today, we're going to take a look at the gospel as story, and we're going to get to that in just a little bit. Week two, this will be next week, gospel as a verb. The gospel is not just something we believe, but something we actually do. Week three is going to be gospel as mission, this incandescent fire that ignites and sustains and propels the church. And then week four, the gospel as a point and a process, how we actually grow as a Christian. So I couldn't be more excited. These next four weeks are going to be just incredible here at North Canyon Chapel. So this week, week one, let's get into it. The gospel as a story. Have you ever noticed how a lot of stories kind of sound the same? Um, I have. I love reading stories. I love telling stories. You know that. Um, But a lot of stories sound the same. They start out with something like once upon a time. And then they continue to say until one day. But then, and then they all lived happily ever after. Why are so many stories about the same stuff and structured the same way? From fairy tales and folklore, sports legends and swashbuckling, Princess Leia and Han Solo, whether comedy or tragedy, ancient or modern... All these stories seem to have four consistent elements, and here they are. Act one, they begin from this place of perfection. Then act two, there's some kind of tragedy, this interruption. Act three, a hero comes in and starts to rebuild things through a courageous sacrifice. And then act four, they all lived what happily ever after. Those plot lines that story structure, those ideas, those are not by accident. Those are the stuff that are what it means to be human. I think it's deeply embedded in what it means to be a person. They're not just the stuff for literary classrooms and theory and it's part of who we are. And if we listen, those plot lines, those story moves, those acts, they're really clues to a larger story, the story. And so this morning, we're going to take the gospel story and look at it in those four parts. We're going to hold each part up to the light of scripture and see them more clearly, because I deeply believe that everyone is looking for something, and the gospel story suggests that that something is actually a someone. So let's get to it. If you want to understand the gospel as story, you've got to start where all good stories start, in the beginning. So our beginning asks us to imagine a formless universe. And a beautiful garden. Creation, this Act 1, shows us what's supposed to be. Now, here's where the gospel story starts. We're going to take a look right at the beginning. This is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And it starts like all good stories start. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Kind of a mysterious intro. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And then if you tumble down through the rest of the chapter, God has his hand in every element of this act one creation. This is hard for us to imagine. Imagine. God is filling up the blank canvas of space and time with everything that never existed. As his creativity overflows, God flings planets into orbit and he sets stars in the sky. He fills earth with this overflowing beauty of his new creation, the sublime, beautiful, untainted world. It would have been breathtaking if there was someone there to take a breath. Because there's something missing, isn't it? And by the time you get to verse 26... Here's what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Every other beautiful thing in creation. Mankind alone is created in God's image. There's an element to who we are as people that's different. Chapter 2 gives us a closer look. It's this picture of this primal, simple, beautiful thing. Chapter 2, verse 7 says this, Then the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man that he had formed. And out of the garden the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he continues in verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So into this incredibly vivid, vibrant, creative world, There's a man, a garden, and two trees. But did you catch it? Like, we barely get one page into creation and already there's this threatening tone in the air. It's like we're being set up for something. The writers of scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, made this really intentional effort to clue us in on where this story is likely to go. So there's this beautiful, rich canvas of abundant life as God intended, but then there's these faintest, pencil tracings and storm clouds already on the horizon and here's why I'm bringing all this up because when you hear the word creation if all you think about is beautiful flowers and flowing waterfalls and sunny in 72 with no mosquitoes you're right but that's missing the point you're missing something big here's the point creation is about relationship We were created for relationship with God. That's what Adam and later Eve enjoy in the garden, unbroken, unclouded connection with the Almighty God. Could you imagine that? Like what would that have been like? To walk and talk with God like you talk with a friend or your spouse, to actually be with him with nothing in the way. No wondering if he's there or not, no doubt. He's actually there. Two people, only two people on this side of eternity have ever experienced that. So act one, creation, serves to answer this question How is this supposed to be? And now thousands of years later, here where we are, we only have the faintest memory of this. It's deep down in our soul, and we only experience the unbroken beauty of creation as a longing that we can't meet, a hunger we can't satisfy, or a hole that we can't fill. Because as beautiful as it was, it didn't last. and It didn't last long. Act two call this the fall. We have creation, the fall. This part asks the question, okay, what went wrong? Now this is the part of the story where the storm clouds roll in. The music rises and the mood tenses. There's something beautiful, but it doesn't last long. Story continues in chapter three. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of any tree of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What a picture that is. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Stop. He didn't say, What have you done? He didn't say, Why did you blow it? He didn't say, Why are you so stupid? What did he say? He says, Where are you? That's another way of saying, Why did you move my child? What are you believing about me? Who are you listening to now? And the answer comes. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. like, nice try, dude. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, if we don't see this heartbreaking scene for what it really is, we'll miss the point. And I want to key in on one key insight. And here it is. The fall is first and foremost a relational catastrophe. It's first and foremost a relational catastrophe. Once upon a time, Adam and Eve enjoyed God's authority. And now they stiff-armed him and said, nope. Once upon a time, Adam and Eve lived in the garden walking with God, but then God's gonna move them outside the garden in just a couple of verses. Once upon a time, they felt close to God, but now there's shame and there's distance. There's separation. The fall is first and foremost a relational catastrophe. The Bible calls that sin. Now, here's why that's important for us to see. We do the same thing and experience the exact same result. We are loved as image bearers, created to live in the intended ways of God. But we've said, nope. Here's the point. Rejecting God's authority over you always leads to forgetting God's image within you rejecting God's authority over you always leads to forgetting God's image within you Adam and Eve rejected God's authority and then they became something they were never meant to be alone the rest of the Old Testament all the way up through the Gospels is this revolving door of humanity just playing this scene out over and over and that image of God that was so clear in creation becomes forgotten lost it's like a path that's overgrown with weeds And if we just fast forward, listen to how the relationship falls apart. This is Romans chapter 1. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to became wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. That's a crazy, crazy word we'll come back to. He gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they had exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to their nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is exactly what you think it's talking about. And just so you don't think you're excluded in this, he continues, verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Now check this list out evil covetousness malice they're full of envy murder strife deceit maliciousness they're gossips slanderers haters of god insolent haughty boastful inventors of evil disobedient to parents foolish faithless heartless ruthless this is us this is the fall Subtle idolatry, the reinvention of the sexual ethic, inward moral collapse. And did you catch the tragic language in here? That phrase, God gave them up. This is my opinion. That is one of the most heartbreaking verses in the Bible. It means that God gave us his ways and he said, live like this. And we said, nope. Shows up three times in that section because you and I willfully play out Adam and Eve's garden tragedy over and over again until finally one day God just goes, you know what? Fine. Here. This is the framework for how we need to understand the darkness of our world. Racism, sexism, abuse, Murder of the unborn, the list goes on. These behaviors are so deeply tragic because they are us as willful sinners choosing to live outside the intended ways of God. So please hear me on this one. Abortion isn't wrong, it's worse than wrong, it's evil racism is not wrong it's worse than wrong it's evil sexism is not wrong it's worse than wrong it's evil pornography addiction alcoholism abuse these aren't wrong they are evil they are relational issues between us and God and they have their roots in rebellion and rebellion is the right word for it because we are rebels now that's harsh I know but it's true rejecting God's authority over you always leads to forgetting God's image within you so act two what went wrong Me, you, all of us, over and over and over. And I know I'm harping on this really hard, but it's so important to see the fall rightly. The fall is the relational catastrophe where I reject God's authority over me and forget God's image within me. So we've got creation. How is this supposed to be? We've got the fall, what went wrong, and now we've got act three, redemption. Act three asks, how will what went wrong be made right and here's why this is so crucial for our understanding of the gospel because if you just get act one there's a god that doesn't mean you're a christian That just means you're a theist that there's something that created something doesn't mean you're a person of faith you can get to act two the fall still not get to Jesus because you just go, man, this world is jacked up and you'd be absolutely right. You just have to have your eyes open. They don't mean you're a person of faith. These two acts just mean you're aware. But the minute you propose a solution to the problem, the minute you introduce a hero, the moment you put the burden of rescue on something, someone, you're starting to make a much stronger statement because now that inward groan of anguish has an answer. Someone's got to fix the brokenness. Who is it? And the very next thing that comes out of your mouth reveals your hope. So it's one thing to suggest that the wrongness of our world can be made right. Lots of people think that. That's not tough to say, yeah, the wrong can be made right. It's another thing entirely to say, this is the person who's going to do it. It's one thing to say that darkness won't last. It's another thing to give the light a name. It's one thing to suggest that pain and shame and relational disconnection, all the stuff that we deal with can be redeemed, but it's another thing to give the task of redemption on the back of one person. So if there is a light coming, there must be a light bringer. If redemption is possible, there must be a redeemer. If wrongness is rightable, who is the right maker? Who? It's not me and it's not you. We don't get there by lighting a candle, saying a prayer, doing something. Let's get back to Romans. We read Romans one, but now I wanna drive us to Romans chapter six. Here's what it says, the wages of sin is death. And that's what we experience. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That little word in the middle, but, that's like a hinge that changes everything. It's this theological turning point where he says, but the gift of God, it's a gift, it's free, is eternal life, like no death. Can you imagine what it's like to have an existence with no death? How does that happen? And then he says, through Christ Jesus our Lord. And there's the name that we're looking for. He doesn't just name the problem, he provides the solution. Here's the point of Act Three Jesus of Nazareth. This carpenter's son, born of a virgin, disciple-making, first-century Jewish rabbi who lived a sinless life, fulfilled the law of God, died a perfect sacrifice, and rose victorious over the grave, is the only ever all-sufficient redeemer for lost humanity. And if your picture for redemption starts with anybody other than Jesus, includes anyone other than Jesus, results in anyone other than Jesus, rests on anyone other than Jesus, then you've missed the point entirely. My efforts don't contribute, my behavior doesn't matter, and my intentions don't even count. All of my sin, all of it, on Jesus' back. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Now that notion doesn't spill the banks of your soul into a life of worship. I'm not sure that you're alive. The idea that a sinner like me could be called innocent in the eyes of a holy God, that I could have my heart of stone exchanged for a heart of flesh, like I can feel things, I'm awake, I'm alive. A life of worship is the only right response to the recognition of redemption. So why do I serve my neighbors? Why do I pursue holiness? Why do I love my family? Why do I give generously? It's not so that I can earn God's favor, hoping that he'll love me. It's out of gratitude, thankful that he already does. That's redemption, praise God. So that's act three. So let's line these up because there's act four, it doesn't end there. Act one, what was supposed to be, that's creation. Act two, what went wrong, that's the fall. Act three, how will the wrong be made right, that's redemption. And now act four, where does all this lead? And for this, I wanna catapult us way to the end. I wanna go to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation was written by a disciple named John. John was a fisherman who followed Jesus for three years. And later, when he's an old man, John has this vision where God shows him what's coming. And John doesn't say when. Um, He can barely even describe what. But he definitely says who. And that's the important part. Listen, this is Revelation 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more all that creation stuff that we talked about just a bit ago i saw the new or i saw the holy city new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride adorned for her husband And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Now, doesn't that just sound beautiful? Especially for this desert of tears that we live in called 2020. But John actually continues, it gets more rich. and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever. Now, there's so much going on here, and we can get into a bunch of it, but here's the thing. Maybe you caught it. John didn't say, all your tears are going to be wiped away. What he said was, I will wipe away all your tears. John didn't say everything will be made new. Somebody said, I am making all things new. He didn't say the thirsty will have a drink. Somebody said, I will give them something to drink. So it sort of begs the question, and some of you are following me, who? And you know who it is. It's Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is seated on the throne. And you can see the parallels, can't you? In the garden. Adam and Eve walked with God, and then here the dwelling place of God is with man. Book ended. In the beginning, in the garden, God prepared a bride for her husband. And then here, did you catch how the new Jerusalem, this holy city, is described? Prepared as a bride for her husband. In the beginning, God creates the sun. Here, there's no need for sun because the light is God Himself. In the garden, there was that tree there. And then here again, it's bearing fruit. And not just fruit, but fruit and leaves that are for the healing of the nations. It's like God in his sin-conquering, order-restoring, recreative sovereignty commands the natural world and the relational world to conspire together to bring things back to where it all began. And this is what I love about this picture of heaven. Heaven's not just harps and clouds. (laughs) Heaven is where all the knots of a painful life become untied. It's not just this eternal, unending, cathartic bliss. It's the worship of the eternal king. In the words of Tolkien, it's where everything sad becomes untrue. And Jesus is at the center of it. But there's a catch. And it's a big one. And it's where we're going to turn this message in our time together. Revelation 21 In the middle of all this vision, John says something. He says this. He says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. And I go, I'm out. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We're going to come back to that because it's super important. But for right now, act four, restoration. Where does it lead? Jesus. So, These are the four acts of the gospel, creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration. What are we supposed to do with this? So in the remainder of our time, I want to direct you to ask four questions that will help you get a handle on this gospel as story. So just a heads up, each one of these questions corresponds with one of these acts of the gospel story, creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration. So let's get to it. Question number one. Do you believe that you are loved by God? Do you believe that you are loved by God? We've got to start here. This is creation, this is God's intended ways. And I want to make sure you heard me correctly. I didn't ask, Do you feel like you're lovable? I asked, Do you believe that you are loved by God? Those are two very different questions. God loves you. Not like you in the generic sense, like, well, of course God loves me. He loves everybody, yada, yada. Not that. No, God loves you specifically. He sees you, and he knows you, and he loves you. You with all your stuff, all your junk, he loves you. He sees you. He knows you. The Old Testament says that he sings songs over you, and he loves you. I know you don't always feel like it. Some days I don't, but it's true. God, the universe, loves you. But we need to look at this from another direction. I think it's going to be helpful and challenging for us. Because if you're loved by God, guess who else is? Everyone else. One of the most daunting tasks of the American church in 2020 is also one of our greatest opportunities. We need to learn how to recognize the unchanging image of God in people with whom we disagree. I think that is one of our most daunting tasks. It's also one of our greatest opportunities. We need to learn how to recognize the unchanging image of God in people with whom we disagree. We're really good at recognizing God's image in people who are just like us, but we struggle, don't we? It seems like we've somehow bought into an idea that someone's image of God is tied to their political affiliation, their yard signs, or their Facebook posts. And guys, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Maybe we've never said that in words, but we definitely have in practice. We're so quick to call people wrong and dismiss the other side as stupid and see them as the enemy. The people who disagree with you are not evil and they're not the enemy and they're not dumb. Guys, we're Christians. We have one enemy and it's the evil one and everyone else, everyone else is an image bearer loved intentionally, intently, and eternally by God. We cannot forget that. These divisive days that we find ourselves in want to teach the church a lesson if our ears are open and our hearts are humble enough to hear it. We are so ill-equipped to recognize the image of God and people with whom we disagree. So if you're with me, if you believe that this is one of our most daunting tasks and one of our greatest opportunities, some of us need to start by repenting. We need to repent of our own worldliness. Maybe, just maybe, in our eagerness to use worldly labels to classify people has actually hindered people from believing the good news that they are loved by God. Can we drop the labels and look at people like God looks at people, they are an image bearer. Whoever your they is, them over there, they are loved by God. So that's the first question that has to do with creation. Do you believe that you're loved by God? Question number two, what will you do with the darkness? What will you do with the darkness? Because like Adam and Eve, our spiritual ancestors, we've got a problem. I do, and you do. There's darkness around us and there's darkness within us. So what are we gonna do? First, the darkness around us. This isn't hard to see. Netflix documentaries. Truck stop sex trading, teen suicide, living room gunshots. This is the tidal wave of the fall cascading through time, picking up more junk every passing year, the further it goes. We do not live in a moral world. People are not basically good. We are all sinners deeply affected by the fall. You don't have to be a theologian to conclude that. You just have to have your eyes open, which is really tough to do these days. Because you know, here's what I do with the darkness around me, is I want to sweep it under a rug. And they're like, well, there's another article, like just keep scrolling, like, well, man, I think my neighbor's having an affair, well, that's really none of my business, or like, I gotta keep my kids from seeing this, like sweep, 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 sweep. The only problem is, pretty soon that rug that we're sweeping pain under, that bump in the rug becomes so big that we actually trip over it. Hear me, the rug of your life is too small and the pain of the world is too great to hide it forever. You can't run and hide. You can't pretend that it's not there. You can't numb yourself. You've got to do something. And I've got a ton of ideas for you as your pastor. I've got a ton of things that you could do. But I'm not gonna tell you what to do. Instead, I'm gonna ask you to do something infinitely more courageous and infinitely more meaningful. I'm gonna ask you to go to your father and ask him. Get on your knees and ask him how you can push back against the fall. What does he have for you? Do the hard work of praying, seeking his wisdom, and then courageously move forward. But we need to stop here for a second, too, because there's darkness around us, but there's also darkness within us, too. And some of you can't hear the rally cry to do something because you're aware of something much closer. You've got an addiction and you haven't told anybody. You've got a past and you're ashamed of it. You've got a secret and it's deep and you feel like you can't push against the fall, that you can't do anything, you can't be a part of righting the wrong, you can't do anything outside because you know that same darkness is sick and deep in you. And you know if you tried, you'd be a hypocrite. So I want to speak to you for a minute if that describes you. I know that pain and I feel it too, because I'm in the same boat. We've all got the pain of sin still sticking on us. We all feel that, but here's the good news. There is no part of your story that is beyond redemption. There's nothing that you could do that would make God love you more. There's nothing that you could do that would make him love you less. And this gets right to the heart of that third question, and it's tied to redemption. Here it is, question three. Who is the hero of your story? Who's the hero of your story? Or if you want to put it another way, who is your life all about? And spoiler alert, if it's you, you've got a problem. If it's your spouse, you've got a problem. If it's your kids, your job, your checking account, your next vacation, you've got a problem. If it's anything other than Jesus, then you've got a problem. Because what you've done is you've misdiagnosed the real issue. There's only one person who can handle the real issue of selfishness and sin and darkness in my life with the enormity and pervasiveness that it is, and it's Jesus and Jesus alone. And here's what this has to do with pushing back against the fall. When Jesus is the hero of your story, you are free. You don't have to project perfection, you don't have to act like you have it all together. You don't have to wallow in your sin either. You get to know that you are forgiven free, that your past is forgiven, your present makes sense and your future is secure. This is the wonderful paradoxical spellbinding beauty of redemption is the only people who really freely enjoy Jesus are the people who don't feel like they deserve him at all. When Jesus died, he accomplished for us what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus is the hero of my story, not me. And so I make much of his work in my life, not my own. I'm going to do something now that I rarely do. Um, I want to pull over for just a second and I want to address the issue of politics. We don't do this a lot uh, for very good reason but I want to talk about politics as it relates to heroism. Who is the hero? I'm willing to bet that your neighborhood looks a lot like mine. Um, I pull into my neighborhood, and there's one yard that has a Trump 2020 sign, and then it's Biden, and then there's a Don't Tread on Me flag, and then there's a Black Lives Matter sign. And I kind of wonder, like, what's Halloween going to be like this year? Trick or treat is going to be really interesting for our family. Um, Because even here, listening today, there are two groups of people listening to me. And they're not Republicans and Democrats, so get that out of your head really quick. The two groups are those who expect too much, From politics and those who expect too little and i want to address those so first the first group those who expect too much i get it there can be a very real temptation in these days to rally behind an earthly hero thinking that they are going to bring the rescue and redemption that you're craving and if that's you i'm about to frustrate you expecting an earthly leader to solve the real issues of humanity is like eating pretzels and expecting them to quench your thirst. And I know that sounds cynical, but if you wanna support a candidate, that's fine. Support your candidate, but cling to Jesus. He is your hero. To the second group, those who are politically disenchanted, those who expect too little, I get you too. You're frustrated and you're sad and you've seen how partisan politics can tear people apart. And if you feel politically homeless, as I do, let that frustration stand as evidence that you are actually made for a king and a kingdom. And so you need to cling to Jesus just as much. He is your hero. To both groups and everybody else in the middle, you need to hear the same thing. Jesus is on the throne and Jesus is king and Jesus is not concerned with political parties and popular votes and approval ratings. He is the all-sufficient, all-sovereign, all eternally coexistent second person of the Trinity. He is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world who can do what no other earthly leader can do. He contains my heart of stone into a heart of flesh and at his name, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and those under the earth to the praise and glory of God the Father forever and ever, amen." I am weary of seeing so many people put their hope in earthly kings. Jesus is your king and your citizenship is in heaven and we need to act like it. So when you enter the voting booth in a few weeks, you are entering as a Christian first and as American second. Jesus is your sovereign. He owns you. He bought your citizenship and so enter prayerfully seeking to honor him and vote your conscience. Last word on this before we get to question four. And I mean this for our church and I mean it for any church or anybody who's listening. If you love Jesus, if we forget that it's Jesus who unites us, partisan politics will divide us. Don't let that happen, church. So who's the hero of your story? And just to be clear, there ought to only ever be one answer to that question. Question number four. And this is the last act. This has to do with restoration. Whose cause am I advancing? Whose cause am I advancing? Or if you want to put it another way, what am I living for? What is the purpose of my life? It's a very big question. We can all answer it in different ways. Um, It came up over dinner the other night with some friends. And at the table, somebody asked me, they said, okay, like I hear it all the time, pastor. Like make much of Jesus every day to everyone. I get it. Like I hear it. I say it. I get it. How do I do it? And specifically, it was how do I take a conversation that I'm in and steer it back to talking about Jesus? And um, so here's my answer to them, and I'll I'll give it to you because it's how I try and do this in my life. Sometimes the best conversations about God start by asking questions about people. And so I encourage this person to ask something like this. Say, hey, you know what? You, You seem like you're a person of faith. How have you seen God bring you strength in recent days? Or you could ask something like, do you believe that Jesus is bringing you strength? How can I pray for you? Because then you know what happens? The conversation shifts from the chaotic static of a world gone crazy to this infinite worth of the King of Kings. I want you to consider something, and this is true if you're listening this morning and you're 12 or you're 92, it doesn't matter. You are a person of infinite influence. You have profound influence. You have no idea what God can do with your life. Every living person has been given a measure of influence. That means that you can make a change in this world. The created God of the universe, as he's creating all of this creation, he created you in his image. He gave you a voice. He gave you something to do. And therefore, he's giving you influence. The ability to add your voice to a chorus of other voices and influence the world for a cause that's bigger than yourself. But here's the thing about influence. It's infinite in scope, but it doesn't last. It's limited. You can misuse your influence by advancing causes with little impact, and you can lose your influence by becoming a person of low character. Paul got this. And when he had to talk about the cause that he was advancing... And this will be our last word for this morning. Here's how he answered it. And I love this verse. It's so close to how I want to live my life, and I hope you can resonate with it. This is Acts chapter 20. Here's what he says Paul says, I don't count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. That is a strong statement if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus, to do what? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus is either the Lord of your life or he is the accessory to your agenda. He will not be both. And I'm telling you, only one of those is satisfying for you. So let me be practical about this. Please, 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 please refuse to spend your valuable influence on causes that do not impact eternity. If you believe the gospel story, I mean really believe it, creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration, you will show that belief by your willingness to drop the stuff that doesn't matter, and almost nothing else matters. You have profound but limited influence. Please don't squander it. So have the courage to ask yourself, whose cause am I advancing? Everyone is searching for something. Absolutely everyone. So here's where we've got to end. This gospel story, as you've already picked up, is shot through with Jesus. He is everywhere. And so I want to come back to that tail end of where we were about the Lamb's Book of Life. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with him? Is he going to be just something you say when you smack your finger with a hammer? Is he someone who's a picture on your wall at home? Is he someone who lives in churches but nowhere else? Or is he your personal savior and the Lord of your life? These are very, very big questions. I think our world right now. As we are searching for so much, there's only one thing that lasts and his name is Jesus. And so let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this gospel story, this truth. We are created in your image and we are fallen in our sinfulness, but we can be redeemed by your grace and so we can have hope for a restored future. Father, we just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you that guilty sinners can be made righteous, that you in your love has, have divined a way to let that happen. Father, we fall on your mercy. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media.